listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome once again to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for joining us today in the Doctor's Lounge, where you get to hear conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. We bring you the best in healthcare policy as a program sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We are a 501c3 educational organization. Uh, we strive to educate folks on the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship, and we advocate solutions that allow doctors and patients to work together unimpeded without interference from third parties such as insurers and bureaucrats, regulators, hospitals. We want doctors and patients to be free to make their own choices on the behalf of patients in the interest of their best health care. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation enjoys uh, a very nice relationship with the Heartland Institute, ideas that empower people, and they have a publication uh, that comes out monthly called Healthcare News. They also have frequent uh, podcasts, and I'm proud to say that my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurst, just did a couple of podcasts with Mike Hamilton from the Heartland Institute on Colorado Care. So I invite you to go to www.heartland.org, uh, look up the Heartland Institute, look up Healthcare News, and between Healthcare News and the Doctors Lounge. You can stay up to date on the best of healthcare policy um, at the uh, at the Doctors for Patient Care Foundation. We are the only healthcare think tank that is fully staffed only by full time practicing physicians, and we are very proud of that unique spot that that we occupy. So it's good to be back. Uh, I apologize uh, to the audience because uh, the last couple of shows I've had to kind of skip and we've had to put in uh, reruns because of a very busy time in August to get a child off to college for the first time and all kind of a big deal. So it's good to be back behind the microphone. Uh, and it's also good to be back here with a very special guest, John Flo. Uh, John is a uh, fourth-year med student, right, John? Actually, I'm in between my second and third year. In May, I'll start my third year. Oh, okay. All right. I did my math wrong in terms of, uh, <laughs> of when you graduated. So you graduated from Hillsdale College in 2013, Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry, um, between second and third year of medical school, and um, decided one day to Google free market healthcare and ended up uh, being a part of the Benjamin Rush Institute, and he started uh, a chapter of the Benjamin Rush Institute at St. Louis University. So, uh, John, thanks so much for being on the program. Oh, thank you, Dr. Kruchat. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So we're going to talk today about um, a couple of new news items. As the audience knows, I, I tend to cover more of the health information technology space as part of what the Docs for Patient Care Foundation covers in healthcare policy. And last week, um, there were two items uh, that are newsworthy that are worth building a show around. Um, and one of those uh, came out September 6th. Uh, and this was a study in the Annals of Internal Medicine, which was a, 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 a sort of a, a motion study um, that, that looks at how doctors spend their time. And, and we're going to look at that shortly. Uh, the first thing I'm going to cover actually came out September 8th. Uh, and this was a, an, an update uh, blog post that was posted by Andy Slavitt, who's the acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, I had the privilege of having Andy as a guest on the show back uh, a couple of months ago in the first week of June. Uh, and we've communicated off and on ever since, but uh, as part of the update, 
to the upcoming final rule for MACRA. And those of you who listen to the show regularly remember what MACRA is. This is this new uh, law where the legislation was passed in 2015. The proposed rule was issued in April of this year. The final rule comes out in November of this year, and the thing goes live for every doctor in the United States that sees Medicare patients January 1st, 2017. An incredibly fast schedule for one of the most radical changes in how physicians are paid uh, in, in recent history. And so Mr. Slavitt in, in, uh, issued this blog post as sort of a, of a, of a teaser, or sort of a, a preview of where the final rule might be going, which is actually a very nice thing for him to do because, again, given this extremely short time frame that the entire healthcare industry is on, you know, any kind of an inkling of where they're going is most welcome. So remember with MACRA, if you remember the few shows back when we talked about this, there, there are two ways that you can be in compliance with MACRA. Uh, one is to completely revolutionize your practice and, and create what's called an alternative payment model. This would be like a medical home or an accountable care organization. Or you can jump through an elaborate series of hoops called MIPS, which is the Merit Incentive Payment System. And it's this very complicated four-part thing where every doctor is scored And based on your score, your base Medicare payment is either enhanced or reduced based on the score. And if you remember when we critiqued that, part of the problem is is that this reward penalty program has to be revenue neutral so that the number of folks who are penalized, folks that have their Medicare payments reduced, um, actually pay for the bonuses for the people who score high enough. And I'm not going to go into the, the deep details of this, but uh, you know, one of the criticisms we had was that small practices are doomed under this thing because they can't compete with the bigger practices because they're all graded on the same curve as far as whether you get a reward or whether you get a penalty. So with those thoughts in mind, on the 8th, uh, uh, Mr. Slavic comes out with this update that says... In addition to the two ways you have to comply already, which is either alternative payment model or MIPS, we're going to give you two more ways to avoid a penalty. And the first one he calls test the program. And in this option, all you have to do is submit some data. And that's in quotes, some data. That's what comes from the blog post. What does some data mean? have no idea whether that means one data point or 50 data points or exactly what that means. But it looks like there's some sort of radically reduced or streamlined way for you to admit to, to submit something for scoring. And as long as you submit something, you won't get penalized. Now, you definitely won't get rewarded either, but at least you'll keep your baseline Medicare payment if you submit something. It's just a way for what they say, be sure your system's working, avoid the penalty. So that's option number one. Option number two is to participate at a full level with either MIPS or, or, or an alternative payment model, um, but not for the entire year, right? MACRA, as it's written, is a 365-day reporting period. You could do it for six months or three months or maybe even less than that. You'd be eligible. I assume you'd avoid the penalty. It's not specific. But then you'd be eligible for a bonus, but it wouldn't be as much of a bonus as if you uh, participated for the entire year. So I'm doing a lot of talking. I'm going to stop there for a minute and, and ask John, who's a, who's a, a, a good uh, sort of uh, bellwether here, how am I doing explaining this? Is this making sense to someone who, as a medical student, has had no occasion whatsoever to be familiar with any of this stuff? How am I doing? Yeah, I'd say I, I'm able to follow you. 
But I know I can speak for many of my colleagues in medical school that a lot of this goes over our heads. And it's really unfortunate because all of us are going through medical school investing all our time and money, as all of you know. And this, these, these policies and these regulations are going to determine the way we practice, and we have no clue of what's going on most of the time. So while I'm able to follow you, I know that for many of my peers, it would be very difficult to understand what's even being discussed here. So, I mean, it sounds like things are pretty much as they were when I was in med school back in the dark ages, uh, in the uh, in the mid-80s when there was no electricity and we were still treating people with leeches. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, and, and I didn't even know, and we talked to this ahead of time before uh, we started the program, but, um, yeah, I didn't even know when I was an intern, that's when I learned the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. So... You know, on the one hand, yeah, it's a pity they don't teach it. On the other hand, you know, with all of the hard science that you've got to learn, especially in the early years, and then, you know, developing your your basic clinical skills, uh, you know, I don't know if there's even time to stuff that in somewhere. I don't know. What do you think? Right, exactly. And I think to be fair to all the schools, that's a very uh, a balanced perspective to have. They have so much going on. We have to learn so much that I'm not sure that they could fit it in their curriculum. Um, I know that some schools, to be fair, are, are starting to incorporate some more business training, some, some lectures on uh, insurance and, and some general ideas of how policy works. Um, but really, uh, as far as I'm concerned, this gap in our knowledge is really where the student groups need to come in because these student groups are very active. And at St. Louis University, we have, I think we have like 50 student groups, and Benjamin Rush Institute is really filling that gap where we get to talk about policy and the ramifications for us moving forward as physicians. And some of these things that you're talking about, like alternative payment methods or models, you know, some of these direct primary care uh, physicians, th- th- that topic is one of the most popular topics that we've talked about the past couple of years at school. Oh, do you get a lot of traction with that? I mean, does that get a reception with, with an academic audience? It really does. Among, among the students, um, I, I don't know much about the faculty. We have our faculty mentor that's very supportive of us. But I know that the students, especially the ones, uh, obviously, that are looking to primary care, they're looking for ways to be, you know, an independent thinker, a creative physician that can bring value. Whether they use those terms or not, people kind of have this sense, I think, that, you know, when you train so hard to learn something so complex as medicine and health, that you really need to have some flexibility in how you approach each patient individually. Um, you know, the top, the talk of uh, evidence-based medicine, um, they're really pushing that. But I think everybody knows that evidence-based medicine, you know, you're talking about means, but no individual patient is that mean. Uh, so you need to be informed with evidence, but you need to be, be able to be free to really practice uh, with each individual patient um, where they're at in their own health. So I think the, the students know this intuitively, and uh, whether they know it or not, um, they're looking into these things, and we're, we're here to help them as Benjamin Rush. Wow, John, nicely stated. That's that's really nice. I'm, I'm just going to let you keep talking, I think. I tell you what, let me – that's sweet. That was really good. So um, let's just finish up with this with this uh, Slabbit thing because I, I kind of took this, this macro update and sort of put it against our benchmark, uh, John, because as a part of what happens, like I briefly mentioned, right, the rule comes out in April. There's a two-month you know, open comment period, and then that closes, and then they take a few months to deliberate before they issue the final rule, which will probably be November-ish. Um, but we at Docs for Patient Care Foundation did submit formal comments, and we had several criticisms of, of macro, as you might expect. 
Um, but one of the criticisms that we had or one of the suggestions that we had was that there needs to be a safe harbor for small practices to be able to participate in this and not get a penalty. And it looks like, John, they, it, they gave us at least something. They gave us a one-year reprieve or so it would seem. And, of course, the devil's in the details when they say you can avoid a penalty by submitting some data. Hmm. What the heck does some data mean, right? But at right. least on the surface – it looks like there is some sort of ray of sunshine coming through the clouds that at least for 2017 reporting affecting 2019 payments, um, that, that there seems to be some way out. So that one, I, I think they did address that particular um, suggestion adequately. Now, we had a couple of other ones that bother us, um, and, and this is sort of in a completely different place, John, but there's they're actually expecting us to – to pledge in a way to, to to click a box that's an electronic affidavit that doctors will never data block. Now maybe they'll find that'll find some place in the final rule. It's not addressed here, and and the problem is doctors aren't the ones that are doing the data blocking. And I'm not going to go into that, but it just seems like a very punitive thing to ask doctors to pledge not to data block when we're not the ones data blocking. It's the large institutions and the EMR vendors that are data blocking, but not doctors in, in, in individual doctors. The other thing, and this is also something that, that, that probably, hopefully, the younger generation can kind of get a better handle on than we can, is that CMS is advocating that they get backdoor access to everybody's EMR. And what that means in a nutshell is they can access any patient record, even non-Medicare patients, uh, in the name of quality monitoring. And, and, and we have a real issue with that because I think it violates the Hippocratic Oath on patient privacy. It's also a Fourth Amendment of the Constitution violation. But, and the, and it, doesn't, it doesn't address any of that at all. So, yeah, you know, I wish that they had done something a little more conceptually pure. I was looking for something like, you know, delay it a year or something. Uh, you know, the trouble is these things operate in a very sort of uh, politically uh, uh, very tight environment. We're already 35 seconds over on the first segment, so I'm going to cut it off. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for being with us today. Um, we have John, is it Flo? 
John, John Flo. John Flo. Um, he is uh, between his second and third years of med school at St. Louis University, um, giving us a very eloquent presentation on the Benjamin Rush Foundation and the uh, the challenges that uh, medical students are facing. And we're sort of having this conversation in the context of two um, articles that have come out in the healthcare information technology space and the legislative space last week. Um, but before we get on with the stuff that I've got to talk about, I, I want to spend a little time with John and his story. Um, John, when you were you were telling me that uh, you know sometime during your first year of med school, you decided to think outside the box and Google um, free market healthcare. I think you said. And, uh, yep, I, and then stuff yep. happened. So tell us that story. Sure, yeah. Well, basically, um, with my background at Hillsdale College, um, if, if you're not familiar, it's a fantastic liberal arts school up in Michigan, and they really emphasize the Austrian School of Economics. And while I was a biochemistry major, just kind of being in that environment, I really it saturated my mind. And so then when I left, I was kind of there was a gap there, and then I had this natural in, instinct and interest in economics and business that I didn't really know about until I got to uh, until I got to medical school and I started thinking about different ways that I might practice in the future. So yeah, during my first year, um, while I was learning the, the hard sciences, I, I was like, well, how am I going to frame this? This is great information, um, but how the, the art of medicine, the practice of it, that's going to there's a lot of freedom there to dis, uh, to determine how you apply these things that you're learning, um, or so I thought, and that's what I still you know believe today. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of the foundation of what led for me to um, Google, I think it was free market economics and medicine. And really the only thing that popped up that was combining those two things for medical students was the Benjamin Rush Institute. So I did a quick um, search through their website, and I contacted their director, Dr. Beth Haynes, and she just got back to me very quickly and was excited to talk. And she asked me if I wanted to start a chapter at SLU, and me being a fresh medical student looking for any way to make myself stand out, of course, said yes. And we kind of took on that challenge and moved forward, and it actually has been growing. And I think students are really excited about some of these topics and uh, are, are very excited to join us on this journey of learning about policy and business and economics and even getting to some philosophy. Um, one of my favorite things about Benjamin Rush Institute is that they send students to conferences where they can network with physicians and business people about these sort of alternative ways to practice medicine and to build a, a practice. And that really gets students so excited to take everything they've learned and to repackage it into their own creative way and really bring it to um, to the patient and really add a ton of value. So it's been a lot of fun the past couple of years, and, I, and I'm actually working with them right now as their intern for the next eight months and kind of helping them with some of their smaller projects and doing things like this. So it's been a lot of fun for me. Well, that's a that's a tremendous story, John. It's a it's a very inspiring story, and, and you know it takes you know no small amount of guts to to start a group like this. Um, how hard was it to get people interested uh, in in something like this? Because I, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, John, but that you know it's it it's not the dominant point of view on any academic campus, some of the things that, you know, BRI does and docs for patient care. And, and, uh, how did that go trying to get people interested? Did you get any opposition or uh, how did that all go? Yeah, it's certainly not the, uh, the hottest topic um, in medical school. Uh, I, I did have a little bit of trouble uh, kind of kindling the, the initial interest. A lot of people in medical in school, you know, are busy and they don't really care to be thinking about some of these topics that aren't immediately relevant. But like I was saying earlier, I think as people start 
really thinking about the way that they're going to be practicing medicine in the future, it starts to pop up again in their mind, like, oh, wait a minute. How is this going to look? What do these regulations mean? What does this mean for me and, and my practice one day? And then, then that's when they start coming back around to the Benjamin Rush ideas and coming to our meetings and talking about some of these topics. So initially, I really I kind of just found four or five of my close friends, and I said, hey, would you mind just kind of doing this with me, um, even if you're not interested in it at all, you know, just kind of as a favor? Um, some of them were kind of like, sure, I'll do it. Some of them were like, I'm kind of interested in economics and I kind of want to do a private practice one day maybe, and maybe this would be relevant. And uh, most medical students like to learn in general, so it wasn't too hard to find, like, five people to join me. Um, but then once we got that established, uh, we, went all, we all went to a, a leadership conference that year in D.C. with the Benjamin Rush Institute. And when we came back, those students that joined me, my peers, my friends, they were so excited about it. And I, it was such a joy for me to see that because now they are kind of sharing in that the interest that I have had for about a year now. And uh, then they're much better spokesmen and spokeswomen for, um, for our peers. And so it just started to kind of feed itself. So now that we were kind of established for a year and a half, um, it's really it's, it's growing itself. I, I really do believe that we have the best topics, the best, uh, the best meetings. We, uh, we really try to have the best food. That's really big for medical students. Absolutely. Uh, and we're, we're, <laughs> we're doing a good job. So I've handed it off to some new leadership. I've kind of stepped out of the leadership role, and I'm, I'm very excited and very um, – optimistic for the, the future of Benjamin Rush at flu. Well, that's a that's a, I I continue to be blown away not only by the story that you tell but but how you tell it because um, that's a, that's a really a great story to hear and I, and I I hope maybe this podcast gets out to other folks that are considering doing this at other medical schools as as an inspiration um, to them because it is really a, a a really neat story to hear. I certainly hope so. It's. It's been a great journey, and one of my favorite things I like to tell people um, is the best compliment I've received in the past two years uh, was from one of my dean of men at, at St. Louis University, and I was telling him about a, a, a debate that we were setting up over single-payer health care. And he said, you know what, John, you're kind of a troublemaker, aren't you? Yeah. And I thought, you know, <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're kind and we're patient and we're not aggressive, but we're definitely we're asking questions and we're bringing up topics that are kind of stirring the water a little bit, and they're definitely not the mainstream view. Um, a lot of people have these questions like, well, what about the poor? What about, you know, the expense of health care? And we're asking those same questions, so I'm just trying to bring that to the table to, our, to my peers at St. Louis University and say that, no, we're asking the same questions. We want the same goals, or we have the same endpoints. Um, we just think that there's a better way to get there. Um, with a lot less um, regulation and red tape that's going to prevent growth in the future. Well, that's you've touched upon one of what I consider to be one of the hardest points and hardest distinctions to make. And again, I'm amazed that you already hit on it you know, and, and came up with it on your own, which is to distinguish between disagreement regarding goals and disagreement regarding method. And, you know, one of the shell games that the folks who control the narrative like to play is to swap those around and accuse you of disagreeing regarding the endpoints rather than the means, right? Everyone wants the poor to receive care, uh, and yet they will turn that around and say, well, because you advocate what you do, you really don't care about the poor. So the fact that you have figured that subtlety out already is uh, is significant indeed. Yes, well, it's been a, a learning process for the past two years, trying to come up with answers to these questions that are very difficult. And oftentimes I've felt like, 
you know, the cold-hearted capitalist or the free market. I'm holding on to these ideas of the free market just regardless of the evidence. But, no, it's, it's much more uh, – I found that the free market thinkers are a very happy crew, and they're, they're happy warriors, and they know that their ideas work. They know that the market handles these uh, – addresses these issues um, in a very effective way, and it, it, it is – they have the best answers. And there, no doubt there is a need for government and a safety net and all these things that we can Absolutely. talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's go on. we got, what, about four and a half minutes left in this segment. So let's go ahead and start a little journal club here. Um, so I've got this article here, and, I, and I'll tell the audience in advance I did not have a chance to, to forward this to John. So everything he knows, he's going to hear from me right now. So um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll we're going to resist the urge to, to to pimp the med student here. We're going to just kind of keep this <laughs> nice and light. Um, but anyhow, so this is a study that was published uh, on the sixth of September in the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, and uh, it is a allocation of physician time in ambulatory practice. Uh, it's a time and motion study in four specialties. And, and why is this relevant? This all sounds very sort of dry and, and, and uh, you know, sort of scientific and, and it's, it's going to put the whole audience to sleep. Give me a chance and if I fail, I bet John can pick me up here. Uh, but but uh, this, is, this is relevant because it has to do with, with the efficiency of physicians in their clinic. It has to do with the effect of regulations and electronic medical records and all that stuff on, and, and how those negatively influence a physician's efficiency in clinic, which gets around to the whole idea of quality of care and cost and access and value and all of those things. So this article is directly relevant to all of this stuff that is going on in the healthcare narrative, whether you prefer to to package that as a cost access issue, which I do, or some of the other folks playing a shell game try to morph cost and access into a, a quality value conversation. For this particular topic, it almost doesn't matter because this is looking. This study is looking at how doctors spend their time, and this the the, the methodology here, John, is is pretty tight. Uh, it, what they did was was you know take ten observers, and these observers were medical students actually, but they took them aside and and trained them and and standardized their observational skills, uh, and spend a long time before they observed the first doctor, being sure that everybody was trained how to observe and how to classify every moment of the doctor's time through a eight hour clinic day. Um, they also spread this out. They got 57 doctors to observe across four specialties, family medicine, internal medicine, cardiology, orthopedics. Um, they went, came from four separate states, um, Illinois, New Hampshire, Virginia, and Washington. All the observations were made over a two-month period, July, August of 2015. And they had um, seven electronic medical records systems represented. Um, including like a lot of the big ones, Epic, Allscripts, uh, Athena Health, Centricity, NextGen, eClinical Works. The only big one that was missing was Cerner, so not sure why, but um, doesn't matter. The point is, I think they've gone. A, they went a long way to sort of isolate the effect of which EMR you were using to, you know, neutralize the effect of what specialty you were looking at and what geography you were looking at. Um, and really kind of, you know, for as many docs as they had, I mean, you'd need a couple hundred to do any better than this. Um, but, but pretty good methodology. You know, they, they did pilot studies first to figure out how they were going to allocate their time. You know, then they developed their allocation schedule. Then they loaded it into this program called Wombat, which is some sort of work observational tool. 
And so that was most of their observations. Then they also allowed these 57 doctors the opportunity to keep diaries for seven consecutive days, so five work days and a weekend, um, to try and figure out, you know, of the eight hours that you spend in clinic, how much of that time is face-to-face with a patient, how much of that time is in front of a computer, how much of that time is doing other sorts of things. And uh, and this was the way that they're going to figure this out. So that covers first methodology. Um, we're going to get into the results in the next segment. Um, you are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek, with special guest John Flo, uh, a medical student at St. Louis University. And we're having a, a nice conversation, maybe a little bit of journal club here, if you will, talking about uh, a couple of articles that pertain to health information technology and healthcare policy. And in the process, uh, John is telling us some really inspirational stories about how he's come through uh, medical school and established a chapter of the uh, Benjamin Rush Institute. Um, so it's making for some great listening, so please stay with us uh, for the rest of the hour. Um, The Doctor's Lounge radio show is broadcast live every Thursday morning from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. on America's Web Radio, and I'm always try to do my best to give David Moxley at America's Web Radio a shout-out for his support for us over these uh, two years uh, plus that we have been broadcasting. Um, The the show is also available by podcast, uh, and I'm proud to say we're doing about 15,000 podcast downloads per month, and uh, we're very grateful to you, our listening audience, for your support. Um, we would also be grateful if you would continue to show your support, not only by listening, but by going to our website, um, which is d4pcfoundation.org, or just Google Docs for Patient Care, um, and uh, donate to support the cause. This radio show does not happen um, without financial support, as well as the uh, uncons- uncompensated time that we, the board of the foundation, put in, not only, not only for this radio show, but uh, for uh, all of the other activities that the foundation uh, is involved in. Um, so let's get back to um, to this uh, uh, this study, this uh, little journal club here we're having um, about a, a time and motion study looking at how doctors in an ambulatory clinic, seeing patients in the office, 
um, how efficient are they? Where are they spending their time? How much time are they spending with patients? How much time are they stuck on the computer? How much um, are they doing other stuff? So we talked about the methodology at the end of the last segment, and, uh, and, and I was pretty impressed with the methodology. The, uh, this paper is actually, by the way, it is supported by the American Medical Association. The, the principal authors are staff, employees of the American Medical Association. Uh, there is some academic affiliations with an institution in Sydney, Australia, and at Dartmouth. Uh, but mainly this is coming straight out of the AMA. And, you know, I personally am not a huge fan of the AMA, but I kind of like what they've done here with this paper. It is far from perfect, but I think it does uh, fill a space that needs to be filled. So um, let's go on and, and present some of the results, right? And here's the questions, right? So um, here, we'll, do it. We'll, we'll play Socratic method here with John for a minute just for fun because he hasn't had a chance to look at the paper. So we're going to make him guess. At some of the numbers. So, so let's, um, actually, I may have leaked some of these to you already. I don't remember, but, but, uh, so, so what do you think, uh, you know, how much time, um, do you think in a day expressed as a percentage? Um, how much time do you think a doctor spends according to this study, right? This isn't gospels, one study. Um, how much time you think you spend face to face with the patient, examining them, getting a history, talking to them, making a plan? What percent you think? I'm pretty pretty pessimistic with some of this stuff. So I'm going to say 40%. 40%? That's not bad. That's probably what I would have guessed, too. Um, it's a reasonable guess. Actually, the number is about 27%. Wow. Um, you know, that... Now, it, now 40% is closer to the number. You know, How much time do you actually spend in the exam room? Um, and, again, that's a bigger number. That's about 50%. But of the time that you're in the exam room, you lose even 30%, 37% of that time to fiddling with your EMR in the exam room in front of the patient. Which every patient loves. Which every patient loves. Although in my own personal experience, I, I think there is, there is a whole undeveloped science, right? I mean, I think, I think health information technology needs to be almost a subspecialty of medicine that has basic science and clinical applications. And basic science is missing here. Uh, and I think, and, and I've always, you know, we've had our EMR for about 10 years, John, and I'm always looking for a better mousetrap as to how to bring this third thing, this computer into the room in a way that is socially graceful that creates a favorable bedside manner um you know one of the things that i do is try to just turn the computer towards the patient so i'm shoulder to shoulder with the patient i'm showing them what i'm doing as opposed to hiding it all um behind the screen but anyhow let's go back to the numbers so so they they're saying that the the total clinical face time uh expressed as a percentage of the entire day is 33 percent um and out of that 33 percent um 27% of the total is um, spent face-to-face with patient, and another 6% is sort of talking with staff about the patient. It's still direct clinical time, um, but they're sort of counting that as face time. So somewhere around, you know, depending on how you interpret their data, either 27% where you're actually touching the patient or talking to the patient, or 33 if you include interaction with the staff, that's all kind of right there. So that's 33%. 49% of the time is spent out of the exam room. So that's, that's your, your, so half the time 
you're, you're out of the exam room. Half the time you're in the exam room, but of the time that you're in the exam room, only half of that's actually interacting with the patient. So it's kind of rule of halves. I think that's probably the easiest way to remember it, especially since it's you know one person blabbing in your ear here. I think I'd make it a rule of halves. Half the time in the exam room of that time, half um, actually uh, you know face to face, looking in the patient's eyes, talking to him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So now I think that the, the you know th- this article's been tweeted it's been mentioned it's been cited uh and and there's a statistic that they have in there where they're saying that um that doctors have to spend 2 hours on the electronic medical record for every 1 hour that they spend with patients and and I think if you look at their data it's not quite that strong it gets close to that if you include the diary data which show that in addition to this 25% efficiency that you're stuck with in the office, that in addition to that, you got to spend another hour on your EMR every night catching up. So that's the other thing that was documented here is that office time is very inefficient, but even as bad as it is, you got to add in another hour to hour and a half to that number, to the, to the, the non-productive numerator, because you know they're, you're going home and you're using the EMR, and I can tell you that's exactly true. Um, that I do that every night that I have office hours. I got to come home and, and, and fill in what's left. So uh, let's see if we can come up with another question here for you and make you make you guess at something. Um, so there's three ways that you can get data into the computer if you're a doctor. One is that you can enter it yourself. Um, the other is that you can dictate it, and the third option is that you use a scribe. Um, so which of those do you think is the worst, entering it yourself, dictation, or scribe? Which one's the worst? In regards to accuracy? Uh, no, um, efficiency. I'm sorry. I'm not asking the question. Which one do you think is the least efficient? Probably uh, entering it yourself. Yeah. Entering it yourself is the least efficient. If you enter it yourself... Um, remember I told you the aggregate average was 27% FaceTime. Um, if, you, if you enter the data yourself, that number drops to 23%. Wow. Um, if, you, if you use dictation, the number increases to 31%. And if, you're a, if you use a scribe, the number goes up a lot to 44%. So, you know, it, it looks like with their data, and again, they don't have a big uh, end for this particular one, but it looks like if you use a scribe, which a lot of people do, um, that uh, the things get much better in terms of your ability to, to increase the amount of face time with your patient. Interesting. So, and that kind of make, that makes sense to me. A lot of my uh, peers at medical school have been medical scribes before, and that's something that was kind of new to me. But uh, I've heard that uh, growing, I think, as uh, experience for pre-medical students. Yeah, me too. Actually, now that you mention it, yeah, that's like a good summer job or or, or after hours job. Even if you're an undergrad, is to go and uh, to go and be a, a medical scribe. <clears throat> I will tell you though what the patient doesn't or what the paper, what this paper doesn't tell you is that there are downsides to having a scribe. The biggest downside is expense. Right, mm-hmm. because now you're paying this person an hourly rate, and you know, with with the way that, that reimbursement continues to go down in medicine, um, that you know, shelling out another, you know, I don't know, thirty grand a year or something like that for a scribe uh, is going to hurt your bottom line significantly. That's disadvantage number one. Disadvantage number two 
is something that I just learned about recently regarding scribes, and that is that Medicare, Medicaid, CMS, has rules about how scribes can document. And there are certain parts of the medical record, like the review of systems, that scribes can do, and you don't have to document who the scribe is. But if they go beyond those boundaries, then you have to put another line in the chart note that says, I, comma, your name is the scribe, have, dict- have recorded this data on behalf of Dr. X, who was physically present for the entire visit or something like that. They have some sort of exact wording that you're supposed to use. Um, and so, you know, all of that stuff is going to um, take away from uh, the advantage that you get by having a scribe. And you'd have to run a, do another study and run the numbers to see if after you consider all of those expenses and disadvantages, whether a scribe is still worth it or not. So it's a mixed bag at best uh, in terms of how, you know, whether that scribe makes sense or not. So... I don't know. We'll see. I, I think the, the, the biggest thing that this paper shows is how inefficient we still are. Mm-hmm. Right? Like today, John, I had office hours today from 8 until 5, um, you know, with a little time off for lunch to eat while I was standing up and, you know, run to the hospital and see somebody I have who's admitted and run back. Uh, but I saw about 30 patients today, which is a pretty high number for me. So that was roughly about four patients per hour. Um, But if I'm running at 25% efficiency, um, it seems to me that this is where the electronic medical records industry, the health IT space, really, I wish they could dedicate themselves to this. Unfortunately, because of the regulatory structure we have, there is no room, there's no bandwidth left in you know, the healthcare space or the health IT space to actually work on this. But if they could... They need to come up with stuff that lets us that 25% number come up. I mean, imagine, John, if we could even get it to 50. If we got it to 50%, that means that I could have seen 60 patients today instead of 30. So what does that do for cost? What does that do for access? You know, what does that do for all of these other parameters? I think it enhances them all. Um, but, you know, those are numbers that, you know, that they're not allowed to even have time to look at. And, again, this is getting on my high horse again, but, you know, you can take this idea back to school is um, that, that, you know, the regulatory structure and the requirements that we have, both doctors and EMR vendors, is that all we've got time to do is comply with the law. Right. We don't have time to do anything else. Right, exactly. And. And something that um, Benjamin Rush, I'm working with them on, is um, a project that another student's working on that kind of talks about the effect of electronic health records. And the, the ironic sort of result of the, the regulations that have come with it to push it forward because they see that the government sees this as a beneficial thing for the healthcare industry. But with those regulations and the, the requirements for security, they've increased the cost to produce them and made them less flexible. So they're, they're becoming... They have they have become uh, less useful. John, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you mid sentence. We're we're right at the 13 minute mark. Uh, we're going to pick this up in the next segment. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Thank you for sticking with us for the fourth segment. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak, on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest John Flo from uh, St. Louis University School of Medicine. Uh, John started his own chapter of the Benjamin Rush Institute there, um, and he's told us some great stories about how um, he began this and the challenges that he faced, and, and I had to cut him off uh, mid-sentence here at the end of segment three to get us through the break, so I'm going to give John the opportunity. He was telling us about a project regarding EMR and, and some information you guys were uh, working on, so go ahead and finish that thought. Yeah, sure. So another plug for the Benjamin Rush Institute. i got to do it because I love them so much. But Absolutely. They, uh, Me too. They're, really encur- <laughs> they're great, and they encourage students to write and to uh, work on their, their writing and their speaking skills. So um, a project that they're working with another student on, and I haven't received permission to uh, reveal the name or the, the project title, but yeah, they're going sure. to be producing it, and they'll uh, send out flyers and pamphlets probably of some sort. Um, but it was looking at this issue of electronic health records and whether they've made healthcare more efficient or less efficient. And they've taken a look at some of the reviews that have looked at the time uh, distribution that doctors are spending on working on entering data versus spending time with patients, kind of like what you're talking about today with this journal article. And it is, it's ironic that, you know, technology is supposed to make our lives more efficient. But whenever their technology is not used in the right way or it's not designed in the right way, it causes a, just a whole lo- load of problems and mayhem and really just becomes a, a huge pain um, that actually makes things less efficient. So, uh, the the results of those studies definitely are consistent with, with what's being uh, discussed here. Um, and another sort of side uh, topic that they mentioned was they calculated the clicks for certain diagnoses, and it was really interesting to see how, you know, it might take 12 clicks to diagnose something like uh, the common cold, but for something like left upper quadrant pain, it might take like 83 clicks or something. I'm forgetting the numbers, but what I would be interested to see is how these programs and software are designed how is that affecting the doctor's interaction with the patient uh, by virtue of, like, how many pages or how many screens you have to scroll through, how many checkboxes you have to click? How is that going to affect the thought process going on in the diagnostic patient interaction uh, experience? 
Oh, yeah. You've, you've hit the nail on the head. Let me just make sure I understand. So are you talking about the number of clicks to code the diagnosis, common cold versus right over quadrant pain, or the number of clicks to make a, an automated chart note by clicking a bunch of boxes for history and symptoms and duration, or what exactly is that looking at? Yeah, I, I probably should drag my feet a bit on this because I've only mm-hmm. helped edit the project, but I think okay, what it was re- no uh, talking about was you know, kind of getting through the whole process of making the diagnosis. Gotcha. No, well, it's, I tell you what, though, when, when you guys release that, let's make a show out of it because, uh, you know, that sounds like a bunch of good stuff. And you're, you're actually looking at stuff that, that I've not come across before in terms of data. I mean, it may be out there in the healthcare informatics space, but, um, but, but if it was coming from, you know, a, a physician-driven group, that would be, that'd be huge. Absolutely. I'll, I'll get in contact with them soon. We'll, we'll try to get connected on that project when it's finished. Ah, it works for me. So, but so for the fourth segment here, I'm gonna I got a couple of, of concluding comments to make about this uh, time and motion study, um, and this was stuff that you and I kind of talked about offline during the break, but. Um, you know, the biggest question when you're looking at all of these efficiency things, right, and we said it's a rule of halves, right, if, you know, you spend half your time in the exam room, half the time out, and of that time in the exam room, only half of it, are you directly engaging the patient? The big question, and this is the question you asked where on break, it's the question to ask, which is, well, what was the effect of the electronic medical records? Did it make a difference? And, you know, the problem is that there was no normative data with paper charts that they had to compare to. Um, if you go back and try to dig up some of that data, it seems that that 50% rule seems to hold even if you're paper chart. At least the 50% in the room versus 50% out of the room rule. Uh, some of the older stuff that was done, you know, in the early 2000s, clearly pre electronic medical record, um, you don't see a whole lot of difference in the data. So you wish that these folks had actually broken this out and looked at some, some you know, uh, enough, you know, paper chart practices that they could have compared one to the other because the problem is we can't use that data and prove that EMRs per se are the problem. Um, and maybe you guys will come out with something with this project you're talking about to, um, to uh, address that. Um, but I think it does show where, where health information technology needs to direct its efforts. So enough about the, uh, the, the journal club thing. So um, now I'm going to move on, and, and, and I kind of tripped over this document that, uh, that I'm going to review for the rest of the time, and hopefully John gets some, some input from me. And again, John hadn't had a chance to review this, so he's doing this on the fly. So um, we're going we're gonna to give him a chance to do that if he wants to. But this is actually a rather encouraging document. Um, this came from the American College of Physicians, and it was actually published a year ago. I kind of tripped over it doing the research for this show, um, but it was all linked to the fact that this time and motion study we just finished talking about was accompanied in the September 6th version of the Annals with an editorial, or rather scathing editorial. i got to reach back here to, to find it, but it, uh, it, it talks about, here it is. I'm going to turn back to the microphone here in a minute. Here we go. Um, it's called Electronic Health Records, an Unfulfilled Promise and a Call to Action. So it's this editorial that was in the same um, issue and really kind of, you know, it calls it like it is. And, and I'm pleased to see documents this strong coming from a a mainstream organization like the American College of Physicians. And this editorial actually cites this um, policy position paper called Clinical Documentation in the 21st Century. 
Um, and this is this is this is worth reading, John. I tell you, I'll send you the link uh, and, and and pick this thing up because what I like about it is that it actually is a very it gives a good historical review of of, uh, of electronic medical record or of, of all medical records actually, and you know how things started out, you know, in sort of a paper based setting. Um, but it, it makes some great observations, and I'll I'll throw some of these out for uh, for discussion just uh, for the heck of it. But um, and I didn't realize some of this stuff either. They they talk about how you know in the early 20th century, a right, long time ago, that doctors did keep records, but they were very disorganized. They were not formatted. Um, but the good news was they were very very concise. The doctor said what was going on with the patient and then quit talking. So, you know, if you could get past the handwriting issues and you could get past some of the style issues and stuff, what you found was a very high density of useful information. And in the mid-20th century, even that started to decay long before any kind of computer came along, besides the ones that got us to the moon, um, that said, look, we have to start formatting hospital notes on patients. And so they started coming out with forms that doctors had to fill out as opposed to a blank sheet of paper. And even that was met with some level of revolt. And I didn't know that, John. And they, they started writing in the margins. They started getting mad because of what they called a loss of the narrative descriptions. And, and that's a key point that, that, that needs to be emphasized when we talk about medical records is the patient narrative. The patient narrative is what's getting lost, right? Every patient's got a story to tell, and the telling of that story and the understanding of that story allows what I consider to be one of the biggest quality issues, true quality issues that's in medicine today, which I call contextualization of care. Actually, I don't call it that. I read that somewhere. I like the term. And what it means, you know, and, and is if you if you were to shadow me, John, through a day, and I really wish we could do that one day. But if you shadowed me through a day, what you would discover is that, you know, there's the treatment for most patients funnels down into you know eighty percent of what you see funnels down into a short list of diagnoses, right? For me, that's acid reflux, allergies, thyroid disorders that get referred for surgery. You know, the list is not terribly long. Um, but if you look at, say, reflux and allergies, which ends up often boiling down to very similar treatments for a lot of folks, um, you say, well, where's the brain power in that? It's like no matter what the patient comes in with, you end up doing you know, one of a small number of things half the time. The difference is, is what's called contextualization of care, where you fit the treatment to the narrative. And that's where the bedside manner and the art of medicine comes from. And so I'm very pleased to see a big document like this from a major medical group emphasizing patient storytelling. Right? Storytelling is a very non-computer-based sort of thing, right? I don't know. Right. Do, they, do they talk about that in physical diagnosis still, John? Do they still talk about the patient's story, or is that all gone? No, they, they certainly do. I think my experience at St. Louis University has been very in line with what you're saying. They really emphasize the, the history the getting the information, they recognize that that's probably the trickiest aspect of the whole physical, um, getting the patient to say what they need to say and to understand what they need. Um, that's, that is the art. That is, the, that is what takes experience. You can't just check boxes. You can't just read a book about that. You have to kind of experience that and learn how to do that uh, through actually interacting with people. 
No. Okay, well, that's good. Well, that gives me some hope for the next generation of doctors that at least in, in some parts of academia, they're still teaching things the way they're, uh, they're supposed to be taught. Um, do they ever talk to you about the problem-oriented medical record? Is that still a concept that gets brought up? The problem-oriented medical record. Yeah, that's that I'm whole. Not, I'm not sure. I think that's the whole soap note thing. That's the whole oh, yeah. subjective, objective assessment plan kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. Soap notes. That's definitely something that we review and we learn in uh, the end of second year. And have you interacted with with the uh, EMR yet at um, at your big hospital? Uh, briefly, I have. I, I worked there as a intern for the past three months and. From more of like the pathology department side, so not working directly with patients inputting data, but retrieving data from it. I got kind of familiar with Epic. Is that what you guys have? Yep, uh, at St. Louis University Hospital. Uh, Yes, they have Epic, and I think also at Cardinal Glennon, which is their sort of partner hospital. So, I mean, what do you think so far? Probably not a fair question because you haven't had to do a lot of data entry, but you're doing some data extraction. I mean, do you find patient narratives in there still? Uh, there's some in the history. I, I've been able to find some quoted um, history telling. Most of it is pretty brief. I, my experience with it has been pretty positive. Uh, my first experience was that the software, first of all, just looked like it was from the 80s or 90s. Um, it just was not user-friendly at all. And then I come to That's find that Epic is one of the most user-friendly softwares out there, from what I hear from my peers. So that's uh, kind of... Oh, perfect. how interesting is that? So, so you see, that's very, very interesting to me. So, yes, Epic is, is the number one, right? If you, look at, if you look at a pie chart of market share, Epic's got the biggest slice. No question about it. Um, and so that's interesting that, that you, you know, just getting into this, taking a fresh look at, I mean, on one hand, obviously, by virtue of your age, you're, you're clearly familiar with computers at a personal level. Right. And yet, and then when, but you, the first thing that struck you when you looked at what is a state of the art, you <laughs> are, that it looked like something out of the 80s or 90s. Do I, do I have that right? Right, yeah, no, I thought it was almost laughable, and my, my peers and I, we talk about it, and it's like, how is this possible that these huge, you know, multi-million or billion-dollar institutions in, such, in an area such as important as uh, medicine, that we don't have something that's at least shinier looking? I mean, you would think that they'd be top-notch, very user-friendly, very intuitive, but, um, you know, it took a good month, I'd say, to really get familiar with it, and then after that, the learning curve uh, leveled off, and I, I think it was pretty pretty useful. Well, John, believe it or not, we are at the end of the hour, so thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you all have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.